The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hitting each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free, straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Welcome to Through the Gray. We're speaking with Christian Catron. How you doing today, Christian? Doing well, Joe. Thanks, thanks for having me, man. I'm so excited to be here. So first question, why West Point? Oh, you know, that's such an interesting question. Ultimately, the short answer is it was great education, obviously. Got to play Division One football. I learned, as soon as I learned they actually paid you while you were there, that was fascinating to me. It could, and they gave you free stuff like clothes and food and a place to stay, uh, of books and a computer. All that was really fascinating. And then, of course, the opportunity to to serve this great country was something that was very appealing. I'll tell you, I had no idea what West Point was until my senior year of high school. I don't know, if, I don't know if you ever knew that, but I started getting letters for Army football and for West Point admissions. And I thought it was odd because they had the same zip code in similar envelopes. Army football would come actually in these ugly yellow envelopes and the West Point admissions would be in these gray ones, but they had the same zip code and they both said West Point. I had no idea they were affiliated. Uh, I thought the Army-Navy game, if you can believe this, was one time a year they allow soldiers and sailors to come and play football. <laughs> I had no idea how they picked them out. But yeah, that's what I thought it was. And needless to say, when I found out that it was an actual school, like a university, that, that you got to take normal college classes and you got to blow stuff up over the summertime and I could play Division One football and get a great education and have a guaranteed job after I was all done, I said, where do I sign? <laughs> and so I, I still remember coming up. I think it was the, the day that I needed to make a decision. It was May 
uh, May 3rd or, or 4th, I can't remember, of 1997 that I came up and accepted in person my my appointment, my offer of admission. It's, yeah, that's why I chose the place. It's been a great decision. Obviously, not uh, the most comforting place while you're there and, and doesn't feel great always. But tell you what, coming back to the reunions and getting to speak to people about that experience, I, I couldn't have made a, be a better decision. So why was it so late in the game for you? Were you looking at other opportunities or because May we walk in? I know. May yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, I was looking to stay local. I had applied to, I was, I grew up in San Diego. So I had applied to USD and UCLA, UC Berkeley, all the UC that the prominent UC schools and had gotten accepted to all those. And I think it wasn't until again, I reconciled the fact that army football was associated with with West Point, it became evident that was a really good choice. In fact, um, I had come to a point where I had called the coaches back and politely asked if they could stop contacting me because I had chosen to go to the University of San Diego, I believe. And, and ultimately, it came down to some financial decisions as well. USD at the time was probably uh, $45,000, $50,000 even back then. And and the level of scholarships they were offering wasn't anywhere near what I had hoped or expected. I certainly wasn't going to go into debt, uh, and I didn't want my parents going into debt paying for school. And so when it was all said and done, West Blue was not only the best educational opportunity, but also the best financial option as well. Now, limited military experience prior to walking into West Point, was that a bit of a shock when you come in to be spared? Not so much. My stepdad who raised me, a black man from Detroit, there's just certain ways that different cultures interact and suffice it to say that I had a lot of hard lessons coming up. And so it was funny when cadre would be in my face and I guess they were trying to make me feel some kind of way. I, I was chuckling inside because they had no idea. <laughs> what type of quote unquote training I had already endured <laughs> prior to my arrival. And so the joke was on them. <laughs> so I'm thankful for that experience growing up uh, in terms of my childhood, because it certainly prepared me, but I don't know if most folks would have been able to, to come out the other side just as well. It's amazing how those stereotypes that people look at are so wrong. And it's someone growing up in an urban environment or someone growing up in a rural environment that they won't be able to do X, Y, or Z. But what I ended up finding when I was in the military was the people who grew up in the, the suburbs, the last key kids were the ones that usually struggled the most. They weren't exposed to as, as much as their peers. If you're walking to, to school a couple of blocks, there's a lot of stuff going on in an urban area that you have to be aware of, whether it's oh, cars, yeah. whether it's traffic, whether it's people it's almost more complex and more difficult to track that environment. I and then agree. you move, you put someone into West Point and the chaos or what feels like chaos of beast of walking from point to point, taking up clothes, stepping on a line. And then here comes this person engaging you and, and forcing you to react in a controlled manner against something that feels like chaos. Uh, if you have parents or you have a mentor or a peer who's already exposed you to that, I can see how it'd be easier. It's not easy, but it's easier than if you had nothing. One of, one of my mentors growing up, or not even growing up, actually, after I was already in the corporate world, <clears throat> interestingly, he was one of the 
recruiters, but then also was part of the management development program. And, and, and he always touted two virtues. One was desire and urgency as a means for indicate, serving as indicators for potential growth and leadership. And I asked him, or I posited basically saying, oh, desire, urgency, I certainly have those, but I think the third is probably opportunity. And interestingly, to your point, when folks grow up in an urban environment or other rural or whatever the environment is, and they have the chops, oftentimes it's the lack of opportunity that, that is the reason why we never hear their name. Fortunately, I was given that opportunity and was able to be alongside you and other, other classmates and peers of ours and got to experience what West Point was like. Did you realize what you had when you walked in? Uh, and it started getting rough at West Point, whether it was a beast or academics. Did you realize like the scope of that opportunity you were given? And I, I don't want to say given, you earned it and we all earned it. But sure. Like, I don't think so. As part of the recruitment <clears throat> process, you get to look at the brochures and you get to hear about various different prominent figures who had come before you and the types of leadership roles that they had attained over the lifetime and things like that. And so hear about the names of presidents and business people and, and those types of things. And when you're there, at least for me, it was just a matter of, okay, what does the day hold today and how do we get through this? I, I, I do remember in, in, in Beast Barracks, there, there was Everybody, no matter what background you come from, as, as resilient as I thought I was, there did come a point in time that I recall once during Beast where I got really emotional. And, and I think we all go through something like that at some point. And fortunately, I had my Beast roommate, Jared Cameron. <laughs> Big up, shout out to Jared. He had told me at one of these low points, he said, hey man, listen, I, I know a lot of these upperclassmen, he played lacrosse and had been heavily recruited. And so... He had gotten to visit West Point. He had interacted with upperclassmen and things like that. And he said something about that I'll never forget. He said, man, this place is the worst place to be, but the best place to be from. I was like, that really stuck with me because it gave me some fuel in the tank, some encouragement. Like, all you got, if that's the case, then all you got to do is get through this place and come out on the other side and allow the process to take its course and be refined by it. And so, yeah, that gave me encouragement. What were the, the hardest moments that you had while you were at West Point? I think one, well, I'd say that there were probably two that come to mind. Well, no, no, this, this three, let me see if I can keep in order. The first that comes to mind is I came in to play football and you develop this. I think this goes for every sports team or every club team or any organization within the organization where you develop really strong bonds of friendship with, with folks who are part of that. And even though you're part of this massive collective to be compartmentalized into a smaller subset and to really develop bonds amongst those people is just part of the part of going through the crucible together. Right. At the, in the spring of my plea year, bar plea year, I had, we had gone through strength testing and one of the tests, of course, is a seated leg press. And I had prided myself in my lower body strength because my upper body was weak in comparison. I think I had loose shoulders and I had already gotten, hadn't gotten surgery for one yet. I ultimately ended up getting surgery while I was there and have since had the other one repaired. And so I could never really bench a whole lot, but I could always squat a whole lot. 
And so seated leg press, I don't even know how much weight was on there, but it was like, all right, ready, set, push. And my whole body is shaking. My legs are trembling. Finally get my legs locked out. And in that moment, I felt something pop in my back. And of course, all the adrenaline is going, had no idea what happened. And, and the next day I woke up crying and my two roommates are looking at me like, what's wrong with you? I couldn't move. I don't even know how I got up to Keller. Ultimately I ended up getting two rounds of cortisone injection, but I had had a ruptured disc. And so what came about is even though I had recovered, it was during the time when <laughs> amongst all, amidst all the coaching changes that we experienced during our time there for football. They had brought in a new DB coach and I ultimately ended up getting cut in order to make room for the next round of recruits that were coming in the following year, just because I wasn't able to really perform back where I was prior to that injury. And I remember feeling devastated being cut from the team and feeling, man, I'm, all my strongest relationships were being severed. Little did I know I, I was going to be able to form even stronger relationships with people that were in our company the first two years that we were there being recruited to then play some sport called team handball and how fun that ended up being the last three years of school and all the adventures that came with that and i think that would be one is just again being cut from the team i think another one is my parents were experiencing some trouble at home and just feeling like i was helpless from afar and not being able to help my mom and be there for her i think was was really a big thing and then finally, there was, from an academic standpoint, there was, there's a point in time where there was a math assignment and when they went, if not for my, our good friend and my, my, I think he was my very first academic year roommate, uh, Ivan Gadorov, Ivan, the Bulgarian beast, love, love him. Anyways, he helped me through a lot of math work and DDS, discrete dynamical systems, and all these fancy words for math. I got, I started getting lost when they started introducing letters into math equations. And I said, I thought these, I thought math was supposed to be about numbers. What are all these letters about? <laughs> At any rate, so he was very helpful to me. Well, I think there was a time where on one of the assignments, I just, I didn't end up documenting as thoroughly as I should have. And one of my math professors called me in and he didn't question my integrity per se, but he did provide a, a pretty stern warning. Like, Hey, I'm more or less to paraphrase. I know what your academic record has been in this assignment looks pretty strong and you should probably be documenting much more than this. And he ended up using an analogy about a soda can. I still remember his name, actually, Lieutenant Colonel Pilgrim, uh, great input and advice and grateful that he pulled me aside, but, um, uh, he said, if you, if you came into your room and there was a, a can of soda inside of, uh, your mini fridge, uh, and it wasn't yours, would you take it out and drink it? And he said, ultimately his, the, the crux of the story was that if it doesn't belong to you, you're claiming it as your own, that's a form of stealing and why even put your integrity at risk. And so I wouldn't say that. Thinking back on it, I, I wouldn't say that was a low point, but it, it was certainly one of those eye-opening situations where it's, wow, this guy had a couple of different ways that he could have gone with this, and he chose instead to mentor me and provide me guidance, and I've and I, obviously, I've, I've held on to that since. There's a lot there to unpack. So the first one, you, you talked about the resolution of, of being cut from football and the injury. 
and moving on to other sports with other classmates. Is that ultimately what helped you get through that rough period? Is, is the ability to transition to a new team and a new sport and a new way to challenge yourself and have success? Yeah, without question, I would say yes, uh, absolutely. Because um, in some ways, I think part of the loss that I experienced, that I think anybody would experience when you're cut from a team is not only do you forego, uh, uh, especially involuntarily playing the sport that you love, but then also the camaraderie that exists amongst teammates. And I think that's probably what I was most uh, disappointed about, uh, is, is feeling like, man, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to hang up with these guys on a regular basis. And all, all the things that, that again, come with those friendships, little did I know at the time that not only would I retain those friendships, because even now I'm on the Facebook army football groups, I, I've been able to maintain close contact and still consider part of the army football brotherhood, I gained a whole lot more friends and connections that I didn't anticipate because of that transition. It's not, I guess my point is that I didn't lose friendships. I ended up gaining a lot more that I may not have had. The second instance, it, it, it's one of those first things that as, as you grow up and you become an adult is you've got your personal life and then you get the lives of your family, your friends, and it may be separated. How did you get through that period of being physically separated from um, your parents and still mentally and emotionally being tied to them yeah. during that time of stress. Yeah, that's great. First of all, let me just say that I memorized, and even to this day, my, my wife and my kids think I'm weird. I memorize all of my credit card numbers, right? So I never have to look at it. I think part of that, part of that came from training to memorize these things we used to have called phone cards. And so that, do you remember that there was a public telephone in the, in the library there, right outside of Thayer that I would creep into it between breaks and I would just dial the phone and without having to pull out the car, just memorize it, dial both the 800 number and the 16 digit number and the code in order to make phone calls to my mom. And I think having that connectivity, even though it was much less than what we have in this day and age with instantaneous nature of things was really helpful because she developed, she, she got to know the times and days that I would call and check in. And so that was helpful just to hear her voice and check in on her and see how she was doing. I think from a familial standpoint, I also got taken in seemingly by, by other friends of mine whose families did come up much more frequently the Randy Hoppers of the world who, man, I just really enjoyed becoming part of their family. Imani Dupree, his parents would come up frequently and I'd often get to go and spend, spend the night with his family down in New Jersey and others just like that to be taken in. It made me, it, it allowed me to fill that familial void during the time there and up between the connections via phone with, with my mom and family at home, friends. And then also, you know, being taken in by the family of friends that had the privilege coming up more frequently and visiting, man, that was really a blessing. I, I can't tell you how much it meant to me as a West Coast kid, that guys like Scott Akerley and Jared Sonato oh, yeah. and Jason Hanford, that their families would pull us in for picnics or take us home for Thanksgiving because it, it, it was just like Thanksgiving weekend wasn't long enough. 
Yeah. All the way back to the West Coast. And what are you going to do? Are you going to stay in the barracks? And it's like, man, that was such a huge deal. I, I didn't fully appreciate what Scott and his family or Jared and what that did for me to just what could have been a very kind of depressing moment when everyone else leaves and you're stuck back at Castle Grayskull to go out and just like experience New Hampshire. Um, yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. What drove kind of your decision for branch choice as you were getting near graduation? I think that there's a common misconception that FA stands for football alumni, but to some degree it does. <laughs> Many of the friends who were upperclassmen that ended up branching, ended up choosing field artillery. Ultimately, my, my, my cadet troop leader training experience on CTLT was at, was at a base, is at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And I actually got to shadow one of my good friends who that was where his first duty station was. And I got to experience that summer as a field artillery lieutenant. And that's primarily what ended up driving my decision to, to choose that. I, I knew that I wanted to go or select a combat arms branch. It's of the available options. That's the one that I wanted most. Talk me through graduation, what that meant to you and your family. Graduation was an emotional time, not for the reasons that you might think, although there was a lot of that, <laughs> but because six weeks prior to that, we were playing in the championship game against Air Force for team handball. And I want to say it was down North Carolina. I can't remember. I can't remember now. Um, but, uh, I got injured on a fast break where, uh, I was in the air and while I was in the air, I pushed from the side. And so then I jump off of my left foot and then I end up landing with all my weight on my left foot such that my femur, my upper leg slammed into my, the top of my tibia, my lower leg, and it crushed the meniscus, but not only did it, did it tear the meniscus, but there's cartilage at the base of your femur that uh, mine ended up getting ruptured as a result of that injury. And of course, the important thing is I scored on the play, <laughs> but now I think that was six weeks prior to graduation. I come back, they do an MRI, they confirm that it's a torn meniscus, but that's all that they saw at the time. They didn't tell me anything about it, about a ruptured uh, cartilage at the base of the femur. What I was told is I was given the option of going ahead and getting surgery immediately after the injury, but risk not being able to walk on graduation day or doing physical therapy and getting surgery after graduation. And if I did that second option, then I would at least get to quote unquote walk. It was more like Lent on, on graduation day. And so I chose the latter. And what I didn't know was that what would ensue thereafter after graduation, meaning Three days after graduation, I, I go in for surgery and the doc says, Hey, listen, typically these surgeries will go in there, shave off the meniscus. You'll be on crutches for about two weeks and then you'll be able to go off to OBC with your buddies and no problem. I wake up from surgery and he explains he has to take a seat. So anytime the doctor has to take a seat, that means it's something big. <laughs> he says, we went and shaved off the torn meniscus, but we also discovered there was a rupture at the base of your femur and the cartilage. And so we ended up having to do this procedure called a microplasty, which is basically just drilling into that space to allow blood to, to come out of it so it can reform itself. So basically you've got the stem cells within there. 
your, your bone that can then come out, seep out and begin to reform itself. And I said, okay, great. And then, but the problem there was because of that additional, those additional steps, I would be on crutches for six weeks and then I would be a medical holdover for six months. And so that's, uh, that, that's why when you asked how was grad graduation week and all the things that come with that was exciting because we were finally coming to a close, but I also had this injury to contend with and not knowing what, what would come of it. What I had in mind was that, okay, let me just do this little surgery real quick. And then I'll be able to go to OBC like everybody else after going home for a month. And I'm really looking forward to doing that, even though I won't be able to do much, I'll still be done with this place and get to move on with life as happenstance would have it. I ended up working for the Dean of Admissions for, for the next six months after I'd come back from convalescent leave. And it was during that time walking into, into the Dean's office that everybody was crowded over a TV on September 11th. And we witnessed what was happening down, down New York city. I was there at that time and I could talk all about the emotions that I felt being absent from where I felt like I ought to have been at that time. But yeah, that's how graduation week was for me is just both excitement, but then also the, the uncertainty around what's going to happen with this knee injury. So what happened? The knee injury, the holdover, you're at West Point convalescing, 9-11 happens. Yeah. What, <laughs> what comes next? I, I got to the point of being able to rehab my knee well enough to at least convince the physician who needed to sign off that I was cleared to go to OBC. And I, while I didn't demonstrate at that point that I could run a straight line for two miles, I did from a physical assessment standpoint, everything seemed to check out. So I was clear to go. So you, you leave West Point with a partial good bill of health, enough to get to OBC. What was OBC like? Yeah. OBC consisted of all the stuff that you learn in preparation for taking on your first duty station and serving as a lieutenant. Of course, part of that is being able to pass the physical fitness test. And I thought I was good to go. I, I had never, ever failed a PT test before. And even here under OBC, I maxed out push up and sit up portions. And, but when it came to the run, I did not do well. I didn't pass the run. And I think part of it is simply because of uh, how much pain I was in, even Leading up to that, you'd have PT and you'd have mandatory morning runs and just fall in with the rest of the crowd and keep up and no problem. And so I figured I would just do fine on the test. That didn't end up happening. And so what happened after that was I knew that in order for me to get out of OBC and, and pass that course, I needed to be able to pass the fitness test. And so I began running after PT, after PT in the morning, or just some additional mile or two, and then every afternoon running there again, just to get my endurance and, and stamina up and, and fight through the pain, despite the bone on bone contact, since that, since my lateral meniscus on the, the outer edge there uh, was, was gone. Of course, what ended up happening by the time OBC got done is I, I ran the best time I had ever run before and passed with flying colors, but, uh, my knee had eroded, uh, pretty significantly. And by the time I get to my first duty station and by then it's a, it's interesting what happens when you have to perform in front of soldiers and demonstrate your level of 
physicality and your physical aptitude to these young men and, and some women that were in our unit and demonstrating while in public how physically fit I was and yet in, in the shadows having to ice every time I got back to the office or at home, getting out of bed, stumbling and falling back into bed because I forgot that my that need of the work to stand myself up. <laughs> and yeah, I think over the course of time, it's really part of the reason why my military career ended up being short-lived is because of that injury, as well as the other ones that I had sustained, including that back problem that I had gotten from football kind of reared its ugly head again to the point where between the back and the knee, I ultimately ended up being discharged after just two years of service. And really that whole experience is what ended up prompting me to pursue a career in healthcare to begin with. What did that, how did that impact you personally? You have your peers who were out serving at post 9-11, the mind and the soul is willing, but your body's failing you. What was that? Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's one of these things where. I think I came to realize that all the invincibility that we feel when we're young and our bodies can endure so much, all the things that we throw at it, I mean, ruck marches and uh, all, all the things with sports and the injuries, all that stuff ultimately catches up. And there was a tremendous amount of guilt and shame, honestly, by not being able to go and be where I felt like I was supposed to. All the years of training, uh, we had just gotten back from the National Training Center and my unit performed really well. And I felt, man, these guys are ready. I'm ready to rock too. My mentality was that because I'm in a heavy unit, I'm, I have my home being. Whenever am I going to have to dismount and chase after any bad guy? When I'm infantry, it's in my mind, I was rash, rationalizing that, yes, despite my bum knee, to still perform my duties. We're at the National Training Center. And sure enough, my, and I'm part of a field artillery unit, of course, and my fire direction center for when I was in charge of was the last remaining one in this exercise <clears throat> that we were doing. And in order for our entire battalion to continue processing fire missions, I needed to make sure that this kept up and running because that all the fire missions were being processed through the tune at that point. And came a point in time where we could visibly see dust clouds kicking up in the distance. And we knew there were some bad guys. And I tell my 18 year old E4 driver to hop in, let's go get these guys. Cause we needed to maintain our, our unit's ability to, to fire. And we, in order to, for light and noise discipline so that they wouldn't detect our approach, we needed to dismount and chase after these guys and really less than 50 meters into this thing i'm limping along and having to tell my guy hey hold on i, I can't run anymore let's do this I'll, I'll flank around just wait for me and then when i give you the signal let's converge on their position and you take coin and so we ended up getting those guys and but ultimately it was that situation that prompted me to start seeing the doctor because i felt okay if this was the real deal this very same thing could have happened in the sandbox and i just put that 18 year old kid's life in danger by asking him to do something he may not have been equipped to do. We fortunately, we, we, we did well in the exercise and I ended up getting him some type of accommodation for that incident, but I felt it my obligation to at the very least get checked out at that point 
and it was that process that ultimately resulted in a, a medical discharge. So a lot of guilt and shame though, despite all of that, because I knew friends of mine were being deployed, even while I was at West Point still before going to OBC, there were friends of mine who were crossing the LD and putting themselves in harm's way, but doing what we were all trained to do. So there was, there was that now, emotions of missing out on that experience, as, as much as, as as weird as that may say, sound to to civilians or folks who haven't worn a uniform, I felt like that's where I ought to be, and, and I, I physically couldn't be there. You hinted towards it, so that drove you towards the medical industry. It did. I, I received such great care <clears throat> from people, nurses and doctors uh, alike, while I was in getting various surgeries for I'm on, I've had three left knee surgeries by this point. I had both shoulders done. I'm scheduled to get this back finally operated on in about a month and a half. <laughs> so this has been a lifelong journey for me. But all of that to say, man, I felt like, okay, I, if, I can't, if I can't pursue my military career, being able to do what I was called to do there, or at least what I felt like I was called to do, perhaps this is... God's way of leading me down a different path, having received such great care, maybe there's a way that I can at least indirectly impact people's health and somehow get into healthcare myself. And so one of the first opportunities I had was in pharmaceutical sales, being able to share new and exciting information about various different treatment options for physicians to care for their patients. And so I felt like at least indirectly, I was able to impact people's lives and did that almost for 20 years, I did pharmaceutical sales from sales, sales training, management in a very short time, probably about six or seven years before I went to business school. At business school, I wanted to transition from, I, my goal was to try to get closer and closer to the bedside without having to go to nursing school or medical school, just to be more uh, able to directly impact patients outcomes as opposed to indirectly convincing positions that they ought, they ought to use my medication. And so while in business school, I started focusing on operations with the hope that I would be responsible for peanut profit loss over operating unit on the provider side of healthcare, because there's a trifecta or not trifecta, but a triangle rather where you've got pharmaceutical medical device and you've got insurance. And within that, it included Medicare, Medicaid, and then the third point is providers, which you've got hospitals and physicians and things like that. While I did end up doing a short stint in on the health insurance side of this the, of healthcare, I did ultimately also land in the provider side and spent probably the last, I don't know, seven, eight years of my healthcare career working for multiple dialysis companies, a physician services company before, before transitioning to what I'm doing now. Um, yeah, I, I definitely, I spent almost two decades in healthcare before I, I tell people I transitioned from healthcare to wealth care, which is what I'm doing now. <laughs> and yeah. That search to get closer to the bedside and have that more of a direct impact on the lives of people who need care. What was that like for you that first couple of decades, first two decades of healthcare before you switched to wealth? 
Yeah, I think uh, it was really exciting to initially on the manufacturer side, on the pharmaceutical and, and medical device side, to hear these stories of how people's lives were impacted, especially I, ultimately one of the medications that I had the privilege of being able to pedal was insulin. And obviously that's a life sustained uh, medication. And to hear about uh, just the turnaround that people would experience was really fascinating when they started utilizing our medication versus uh, other options. And there's always a sense of fulfillment there. There's a lot of things that can be said about the pharma industry and, and all those things. But I think my experience was a positive one by and large. Uh, I think when in that pursuit of getting closer to the bedside, I had the opportunity to get my MBA, which as I mentioned earlier, I don't like going into Den. So fortunately it was provided a, a full ride scholarship through this fellowship route actually, and ended up going to the University of Texas with Cole School of Business here. And it was there that I helped to start healthcare concentration and then get more and more exposure for healthcare companies to the school, which was needed. And then in the course of that activity, I came across companies that I ultimately ended up landing with and doing more. I, I, part of my training was physically being next to a nurse as we cannulated, which is terminology for inserting the needle to a uh, patient's arm who's receiving dialysis and got my dream, if you will, being close to the bedside, aside from poking the patient myself with the needle, which I wasn't trained to do, I was pretty close and it's got to lead at one point, a team of 500 nurses who were under my care across 130 hospital contracts, coast to coast. And so, yeah, that, that was my pursuit is to have that responsibility. And I was grateful to do that. We had a, a, a small experience with that. My oldest son had a, a feeding tube in his stomach mm. and we had a, a company that was trying to roll out uh, a new stomach port okay. that competed against another company. And that interaction with that, that medical lead salesperson about getting that customer feedback about, does this work? Does that work? How can we have this device support you and your lifestyle and your child's lifestyle better? It's one of those things that you don't really understand until you have that need oh, yeah. and then you have someone bridge the gap between a company and developers and engineers that say, all right, tell me that story. Tell me how you use our resource and how does it improve your life and how do we improve that resource to give you a better life? Right. And it's crazy how important that interaction, that one, that belly button at the company level can be to improve that experience for someone who either on their day-to-day -day is frustrated by a device and is trying to help them stay alive and stay healthy. Yeah. What was it like, the decision to transition from healthcare to wealth care? What drove it? Yeah, it's interesting. A couple of things. One, one is, for me personally, I, what I got to experience was because of the growth of my career professionally, I was blessed with increasing roles of responsibility, but then also earning potential increased. I feel like at every level while I was making more, uh, Uncle Sam kept taking more. <laughs> and, and I wanted to find a way to mitigate my tax liability and after all sorts of research led me to, to real estate. The fact that the majority of the wealthy 
either became wealthy through real estate or as a result of becoming wealthy, now invest in real estate in order to mitigate tax liabilities like possible. So I think there was part of me that wanted to address that issue. But then I also realized, like most things, while throwing money at a problem doesn't necessarily solve the problem, that I felt like I could solve but more holistically, not just with their health, but other needs and desires that they had, dreams and goals and things like that by helping with their overall picture so that they could not only care for their health, but also contribute to their philanthropic pursuits or travel or maintain their mental health, care for those around them, not just their own health. And so what I found was the vehicle that I wanted to use in order to help people do that is, is commercial real estate. So there's a lot of aspects of commercial real estate that I really, really enjoy that because the company, because the company that I, my wife and I created in 2017, we were able to help people to invest their money and make good returns. And in the course of doing that, like I said, they're able to care for not just their health, but their aspects of life that also that's how we got into this space is really initially looking for ways to mitigate our own tax liability. But then ultimately, as we identified more and more opportunities, it became clear that we needed support in order to acquire various different properties, which then opened the door for us to go out to the marketplace and source investors who then come alongside us to acquire buildings. And so I won't say it's been a full it hasn't been all peaches and cream. There's been ups and downs and twists and turns, as I mentioned before. In fact, I'll tell you that. The, so we got into real estate investing in 2017. In 2019, we bought our first um, apartment building down in Houston. We bought a second one in Houston. And this was in 2019. And if you remember, a little thing between 2019 and 2020 happened called COVID. And, and one of our properties actually ended up being, being vic falling victim to people not paying their rent and not being able to keep up with its operating expenses and mortgage and all that. So property actually got taken back by the bank, which was devastating for all the things that you would think of reputational risk, this notion of, man, am I doing the right thing? Maybe I'm not cut out for this. All the negative thoughts that come into your mind after a failure. And that may cause folks to want to throw in a towel and just move on and call it a failed experiment. And so that was in the midst of 20, 2021. So we're now two years past that date and some great things have happened since then, but certainly that's been a big motivator to, to continue to grow and advance and dream even bigger, quite honestly. What, what drove the decision to, to do that? that step into investments, but really not as a step as a part of a, another organization, but to really create your own company, your own brand on your own. Why did you choose that route? How did I choose that? I think, I think that I had the blessing of having acquired the skills necessary to have it, to launch our own company. I had experience in sales training project management, operation, business development, some aspects of finance, although admittedly I was light there as part of the reason why I went to business school would be to sharpen up my quantitative skill set. But I think ultimately what I found was <clears throat> I could apply these skill sets that I 
had acquired over the course of almost two decades to launching something that we could call our own and have full control over what the outcome would be, as opposed to being subject to whatever may come from on high, if you will, and being dictated as far as what we can and can't do. I think that was really our inspiration. I think the other thing too, is the name of my company is Redeem Investments. And it's no secret that there's some underlying sort of spiritual connotations there with the name. It's, we wanted to be able to infuse our own culture and values into the organization without feeling, what if I say the wrong thing? And what if I say God or faith or whatever? Am I going to be slapped on the hand? I don't have that problem because I'm the one at the top of the heap here. And a lot of people who we come across really value the fact that we live out our, our values uh, and the things that matter to us and those happen to be faith-based. So we're really proud of that. I think the, the, the name really comes true when we take on our projects. Dan's explaining to one investor or one potential investor, he hadn't invested yet, that we'll take properties and we'll fix them up and we'll do a renovation project. And he was like, wait a second, you just told me the name of your company is Redeem. That sounds more like a, a redemption project, not a renovation project. And I said, yeah, actually, you're right. We'll start using that now. And so that's what we do is we redeem properties. We redeem situations that people are in, especially those who live in our communities. And, and we try to redeem, especially now, we, we're actually, we're preparing to launch a really cool concept here within the next four to six weeks, where a lot of what we're doing in that, within that concept is basically redeeming old properties and, and not just old properties, but especially now. And I just, I'll let the cat out of the bag since we're talking here, Joe, that we're preparing to launch uh, something called the Redemption Arma Fund. A-R-M-O-R stands for Adaptive Reuse and Medical Office Realty. Okay. And so just as the name says, what we're doing is we're buying office buildings that are either vacant or underutilized. Sometimes these buildings are old. Sometimes they're brand new. My wife and I just drove up from Houston to check out one of the buildings. It's, it's recently built, 2018 built, and this thing is beautiful and it's been sitting vacant for the last two or three years because of this little thing called COVID and people not coming to the office to work any longer. It, companies not wanting to shell out a lot of money in order to lease tremendous amounts of space where what people are going to not come to work and work in the office. So we're buying buildings like that and we're turning them into something that the community needs. In this case, there's a need for more multifamily housing. There's a need for more retail and restaurant space. But one of the, one of the cool projects that we're doing now is, is also in a different part of Texas. It's a 10 story office building that we're turning into uh, a full service uh, business executive hotel. In, in a secondary market in Texas, where there's a dire need for additional um, overnight stays. Uh, in fact, in this hotel, I'm sorry, in this core business district, despite all the revitalization and economic development that's occurred, there's still no hotels in downtown. And this is going to be the first. And so, yeah, those are the things that we're doing as far as adaptive reuse. Uh, we're also turning them into medical office buildings. And we have a physician partner happens to be an army guy as well. Our kids go to school together. Uh, Dr. Atchison is his name. And uh, he has this vision for wanting to help physicians to uh, develop additional income streams and 
really remain independent and not feel like they have to go and work for a large health system. And so doing, they can retain control over their practice and things of that nature. And so we're in part catering to those types of investors, but we're also sharing the story of this, what we're calling a physician's dilemma across and across the, the, the country and anyone else who is interested in coming to support such a cause by being an investor in this very same fund. So all that is coming and we're very excited about that. But yeah, that's effectively where we pivoted and are heavily pursuing this whole notion of adaptive reuse and then investing in the office or whatever else the communities might need. That's awesome. And it's that idea of, um, if you tie it back to West Point and in, as opportunities became available, you threw yourself at them. And then when roadblocks happened, you pivoted and you turned and created new opportunities and created new friendships and you created new relationships, whether it was being forced to leave the, the, the football team, transitioning to handball, being injured after you graduated West Point and then going into the cafe and then realizing you have to transition again. Like you see that, that pivot and that transition over and over in your career. It's really cool to see how you've used each one of those opportunities and each one of those setbacks for a new opportunity. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this part because my wife often uh, reminds me of this and forget just because it's my own lived experience, but she's, you have to remember to tell people that you were born on the dirt floor in a third world country. And I was like, oh yeah, forget. <laughs> and it is interesting. That's how my life started. It's in the Philippines, just outside of the U.S. naval base there. My, my biological father is a sailor and met my, my, my mom was a local girl and that's how I came to be. And then he, let's just say that we, grew, I grew up in his absence or him absent from my life and actually just met him interestingly when I was at the age of 30. <laughs> it's all of that to say that, yeah, I, I do while I'm half black and Filipino and can relate very well to friends and family members who are Black heritage, I was also, am also a first-generation immigrant because having been born overseas and then coming here to the U.S. and learning how to speak English, watching a cartoon called Fat Albert and Friends. Oh, my gosh. Do <laughs> you remember that? And <laughs> also narrated that. Yeah, I know. That was, that was fun. But no, I feel like, man, I, I've lived this interesting experience and you summed it up really well where it's constantly pivoting and transitioning and, and growing. And I guess it really just started from the very beginning, not having realized it until you mentioned it. As we wrap up, man, thank you for sharing your story, Chris. Do you have any comments for the class? Man, I think... I, yeah, maybe I'll just sum it up this way. I briefly mentioned my biological father. It's interesting because when I met him again, when I, at the age of 37 years old, uh, come to find out he had been looking for my mom and I for quite some time, or at least that's, that's what he had said. And I have no, no reason not to believe him at this point. He's definitely the man he was at that time. Turns out that I have four other siblings and multiple mothers. And so from amongst the five children, I think there were four women. And so I'd like to refer to old version of Pops as a rolling stone. And what I think about there is, had he been in my life, I don't think he would have been in my life very long. And then secondly, when I met him, 
he was highly apologetic and remorseful about decisions that he had made as a young man to not be involved. And yet I shared with him much of the same words that out of the story of Joseph in the Bible, where his brothers had sold him into slavery, he told them when he encountered them, when he was the second in command of Egypt, he said, what, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so I think as I think about my own life story, and I'm not sure other folks can relate to this, is when you think about how the progression of your life has gone and how things have been ordained, regardless of what you might believe in, there's certain ways that uh, things have gone. And I'd like to think that they have been for a purpose. And so I cling on to that because at times when things are tough and things aren't going right, it's like you start to question what's really supposed to be happening here. And, and, and the fact that there is a purpose behind it, I'd love to, when I get to heaven, man, I'm, I'm going to be like, can we pull out the playbook? Can we see what play you were running at that time? Because I'd love to know what you were doing. And, and then at that point, maybe I'll have enough capacity to understand. Oh, okay. I get it now. Good looking out. But until then, I'll, I'll try and remain faithful in that someone else upstairs knows what they're doing better than I do. Man, that's great closing comments, Chris. And you're the same dude I knew back then as a plebe and as a freshman or a sophomore at West Point. Laid back, relaxed, and man, dropping all kinds of wisdom. I appreciate it. Too kind, my friend. Thank you again so much for the platform, for the, uh, the opportunity. I'm so grateful for all the work you've done on this. I think we've been blessed by it, and uh, hopefully others recognize that. But thank you so much for all that you've done here. Have a great day. Till duty is done. Thank you. Duty is done. Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is a veteran and first responder-owned company that specializes in handmade, one-of-a-kind American flags. I served with Andy, spending many long days and nights together in the dust and the heat during two tours in Iraq. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking flags are crafted with pride and dedication, honoring all that the American flag stands for. Every flag is hand-stained, handcrafted, and all stars and insignia are etched for a rustic, one-of-a-kind look. Whether you're looking for a graduation or retirement gift for your favorite military or first responder or something meaningful for family or friends, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is your answer. Check out Whiskey Rustic Woodworking on Squarespace, Etsy, Facebook, and Instagram to browse current flag designs and sizes. Mention this ad for 10% off your order and shipping is always free. Make a rustic American flag part of your gift giving this year. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.